Well, thank you so much for your uh, diligent attendance this afternoon and your, uh, your warm affirmations to me. I appreciate it greatly and look forward to also uh, preaching for this local church tomorrow morning, uh, twice I'm told, so that will be wonderful to look forward to. I, um, I'll try to stay as long as they let me to stay to talk with you about books afterwards and thank you for buying so many books so quickly today. Um, generally, a speaker knows if he's getting through if people are buying books, so that's a, that's a good encouragement for me as well. You're, you're, doing, you're doing very well buying books. Uh, let's turn now to, Gen- to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we grow in Christ? We have to be matured in faith. We have to cultivate holiness. We have to grow in knowing assurance. But we also finally have to maintain perseverance. You see, it's one thing to begin the Christian life. It's another thing to keep going. When I was a teenager, my dad told me before I entered the ministry, he said, son, remember this. When you become a minister, you can always begin a ministry. And the first night you begin it, there'll be lots of people there. But the secret is maintaining a ministry. People are always excited to hear about the initial beginnings But not many people want to do the nitty-gritty work of the daily maintainings. And how critical that is. Isn't it true that we all think in our minds of Pentecost, we think of the speaking in tongues and the wonderful things that happened. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Acts 2-4, the classic Pentecost text. This is the wonder of Pentecost. But may I suggest to you that equally wonderful and miraculous is Acts 2.42. And they all continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in the breaking of bread and in fellowship and in prayers. Yes, it's a miracle to be born again. But it's also a miracle to stay converted. We need grace to enter the kingdom. We need grace to persevere in the kingdom. So how do we persevere? And how do we grow in Christ through that perseverance? How do you grow when your hands hang down? How do you grow when you're discouraged? How do you grow when you become a Christian and things seem to go against you more than ever before? How do you grow when you face persecution? 
and affliction. How do you grow when you can scarcely pray, when you're weak and tired emotionally and spiritually and you're tempted to give up? And you're prone to say with Asaph, Verily I have cleansed my hands in vain. And you even start to become jealous of the world, like Asaph did. How do you persevere then? Well, that's the whole question of the book of Hebrews. Hebrew Christians were being persecuted by their fellow Jews. Two people applied for a job, and one was a Christian. He wouldn't get it. Some were being thrown into prison, some were being discouraged. And the author of the Hebrews writes the Hebrew Christians to say, don't give up. In fact, if you read the whole epistle, there are 96 verses, I counted them, that basically say, keep on keeping on. And the climax of it all is in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. That's what I want to preach to you about this closing session, briefly, maintaining perseverance by running with patience. By running with patience. So we're talking here about persevering, enduring. And I want to look with you at three thoughts. First, it's mission. Second, it's manner. And third, it's motives. It's mission its manner, its motives. You see, the author of Hebrews encourages Christian Jews by explaining how all the Old Testament rituals have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 through 9, he's pointing them again and again, isn't he, to Christ. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Melchizedek. He is the high priest. Chapters 10 through 13, Tell the believer, tell the believing Hebrew Christian how to live out of Christ in a practical way. And these questions and these chapters answer the question, how shall we go on? And why we must go on? In chapter 11, he uses a very unique argument. He says, look at all these Old Testament heroes of faith. They continued on, they persevered, by faith Noah, by faith Enoch, by faith Abraham. They all pressed on, and they didn't even have the promises. You have the promises. So you, too, must persevere. So the mission, you see, the mission of every Christian to grow in Christ is to keep on keeping on by running the race, he says, in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And we must run this race with patience, patience, endurance. Actually, in the original Greek, verses 1, 2, and 3 all use the word translated as endurance or patience. We need to run the race with endurance, verses, verse 1. We need to follow Jesus who endured the cross, verse 2. And verse 3 claims that Jesus endured contradiction. So we persevere by enduring. And enduring involves labor. It implies faithfully carrying a burden. It implies 
continuing on in a long-distance marathon. Now, obviously, the author to the Hebrews here doesn't have in mind a 50-yard sprint. He's actually referring in the Greek old culture to the long marathons that they had in the Grecian games. And they would have long-distance runners who'd run and run and run and run. And they'd finally hand the baton to the next guy. And he'd run and run and run, miles and miles. And the races went on and on and on. And the author to the Hebrews says, that's like the Christian race. We're not talking about sprinting here. We're talking about a serious race that tests and taxes our faith, our strength, and our character. And our mission is to steadily, deliberately, actively, every day to keep on running by using those means of grace we talked about. Reading the scriptures, searching the scriptures, personal prayer, intercessory prayer, reading sound literature, fellowship among the saints, Sabbath keeping, living to the glory of God. Keep on keeping on through the means. Run the race that is set before you. Now, how are you to do this? What's the manner? That's my second thought, the manner. Well, our text presents us with both a negative manner and a positive manner. Let's begin with a negative. We must set aside, he says, these are not my words, these are his words, sin. Sin and its baggage, sin and its consequences. Notice what it says. Let us lay aside every weight, that is every hindrance, and the sin which does so easily beset us. Not just some bosom sin or some darling sin, as our fathers called them, but all sin. All sin is a hindrance. Now let us run the race that is set before us. Now what he's picturing here, of course, is the Grecian games. And what the runners would do when they're ready to get in the starting blocks is they'd take off all their clothing except maybe some very light shorts. They'd almost run naked. Because they didn't want any paraphernalia slowing them down. I mean, it's ludicrous to carry something with you when you're running a 20-mile race. It's going to get you down. So the Greek athletes train with a minimal amount of clothing. And what the author to the Hebrews says is sin is like that. Sin is stuff that gets you down. Sin is stuff that holds you back in the race. Lay aside every sin. Not just gross sins like adultery, but lay aside sins that get you down emotionally like unbelief and worry. And fear and love of things and cares of this life, even legitimate things such as relationships or professional duties or recreational pursuits, if, if they're given an undue proportion of your time and your heart, they can hinder you in the Christian race. You know, when I was 16 years old, I loved to play basketball. God converted me when I was 14. I I was playing basketball all those years. My parents weren't too fond of it. They thought, I had, they thought I was emphasizing it too much. And I worked my way up in a school of 2,000 kids. And I was, my best friend and I 
We were the only ones to start on the varsity team in our junior year. Playing basketball, three hours a day, practicing, working hard. Then the day came when school, Lloyd Norris High School, was going to play Kalamazoo Central. The big game of the year. Too many fans to fill up. I mean, too many, the auditorium was too small, so we had to play in Western Michigan University's gym and get like 10,000 fans for this game. This was the game. And here I am. I've been looking forward to this since I was sixth grade, dreaming this would happen. Five years this has been building up. But meanwhile, I'd become a Christian. And I was struggling with the pride factor. And I knew that at this game, there were going to be coaches. And I already heard that they were going to look at me and my friend. And perhaps, perhaps offer us scholarships. And I knew that one day if they offered us scholarships, I'd be tempted to play on Sunday. And I knew, I knew all these things. And the night, the night before the big game, it came to a head in my own soul. And I laid before the Lord... This whole dilemma, was I becoming too proud? No, I said to myself, I can play as a Christian. And, and many people, of course, I believe can play as a Christian. But for me, you see, it was dragging down. I, wanted to be, I felt called to the ministry. I wanted to have time to read and research. and It was a drag on my Christian life. Well, that night, I gave it all up. And I went to my coach the next morning and I said, you know, coach, I'm a Christian and I'm called to be a minister of the gospel and I just don't have enough time. This ball has taken up too much of my life and I'm, I'm getting too proud of it. It's becoming a sin for me. So I can't play tonight. He wasn't a Christian. I, I, honestly, I thought he was going to yell at me. And he looked at me and he said, you know, we're really going to miss you. But he said, for you to make the decision you made takes more courage than for the other players to go on playing. I was astonished. But what was more valuable was when I left, when I left that place, that school that day, and literally, 50 to 100 kids came up to me throughout the day. Is it true? Is it true? You, you quit basketball? Yeah, yes. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you. I told them all. But as I left that day, I went out to my car, and I was all alone in my car, ready to start the engine. I was overwhelmed with this thought. I denied myself a little bit for my relationship with God. But it was nothing compared to how Jesus denied himself for me. And went the way of the cross. And laid down his life for me. I had more joy in that car than I ever had in my whole life playing basketball. Lay aside whatever holds you back from the Lord. For you, it may be different than for me. But whatever gets in the way, lay it aside. That's the point. Don't try to talk your conscience out of it. 
Don't try to dumb down sin. Don't try to trivialize sin. Don't try to desensitize your conscience to sin. Whatever keeps you from the Lord isn't worth the price. And whatever draws you to the Lord is worth the price. Maybe you heard that story of a seven-year-old girl who was laying on her deathbed. And her dad said, don't you want, don't you want to stay with mommy and me in this world? And she said, no, daddy. She had been converted, as I said, under George Whitfield, wonderfully. And she wanted to be with the Lord. But the daddy persisted. And he said, but why? Why don't you want to stay with us? Well, she said, Daddy, do you really want to know the truth? Yes, he said. Well, she said, it's not only because I want to be with the Lord. But you see, Daddy, I noticed that since I became very ill, I've seen you begun, begin to pray. And I never saw it before. I see that you're beginning to come closer to the Lord, Daddy. And if it takes my death to bring you to the Lord, it's worth it, Daddy. Because whatever brings you to the Lord is worth the price. Seven years old. Why does it take us so long to learn this lesson? My friend, lay aside every sin and every weight that besets you. And run the race that is set before you. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You see, if you reckon yourself dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord, which is what you're supposed to do if you're a Christian, we heard about that a talk or two ago, then you see, you say to yourself, sin is not my life. Christ is my life. And so I've got no business indulging in sin. It is indeed that thievish foreign intruder I spoke to you about. So that's the negative. We run the race by laying aside sin, by the grace of the Holy Spirit. But we also run the race, even more importantly now, and positively, by looking to Jesus. That's how you run the race. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus. You see, by looking to him, by confessing him, by appropriating forgiveness from him, by learning to live by faith through him as a forgiven sinner, we run the race. Jesus is our Savior. He's our model runner himself. He's our coach. He's everything. We run the race by looking to him. He evokes and stimulates our faith. He's the pioneer and the perfecter of our salvation. But how do we get motivated to run the race by looking to Jesus? That's my third thought. Not only the mission and the manner, but the motives. The motives. There are two major motives here in the text. The first is indeed the example of Christ. The example of Christ. We need to look to him who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So our Savior motivates us by himself to run this race in three important ways. First of all, 
We are motivated by what he endured. I hinted at that already when I told you about my own experience. When I got in the car, I thought, wow, this is what he endured for me. It's nothing compared to what I endured for him. And that motivated me. But think about it. Think about it in your own life. Jesus Christ hung in the naked flames of the wrath of God the Father to endure, my friend, if you're a Christian, to endure your sin, to pay for your iniquity. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, the most solemn, the most profound, the most intense, the most packed human words ever to have been wrung from human lips to pay for your sin? If he has given his all for you, will you not be motivated to run the race for him? If he has entered into the essence of what hell is in the most climactic moment of suffering ever endured and hours so compacted and so infinite and so horrendous to be seemingly unsustainable, will you not run the race? In those last hours of Jesus on the cross, he knew more about sinnership than sonship. In his self-image, he was not, not the beloved in whom the Father was well pleased, but he became the cursed one, the vile one, the foul one, the repulsive one, an object of dread. This is the essence of the dereliction and the anathema of God. He was cursed. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him and run the race. He endured the cross. He persevered. He persevered to the end. Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end, even when he was abandoned by God. And in those hours of abandonment, you see, no grace was extended to him. No favor was shown to him. No angel came to comfort him. The heavens didn't break open and say, this is my beloved son. There was no part of the cup removed. God was present only as one displeased, only as one bearing down upon his beloved son in profound wrath. Oh, every detail of the cross declares the irrationality and the heinousness and the dread character of sin. And yet Jesus endured, endured the agony, accepted every second of the pain as every breath embraced the cross. Well, that should motivate us. We too must endure in the race. But our biggest crosses look tiny compared to Jesus. You will never have to carry a cross the size of his. That should motivate us. I'm a theological student in my seminary. Well, he's, he's become a minister now, but a few years ago I had the privilege of performing, performing his wedding. And uh, he's six foot ten. And when I walked down the aisle, I never felt so small in my life walking behind, beside this man. 
I felt like so small. And that's how we should feel when we carry our crosses behind Jesus' cross. His cross is so big. His is meritorious. Ours is simply gratuitous. We should be more than willing to run the race, motivated by what he has endured for us. Secondly, we are motivated by what he rejoiced in. Not only by what he endured, what he rejoiced in. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, says our text. You see, the cross was not Jesus' end point. He rejoiced under the cross, knowing he was going to be the victor in the battle with the powers of evil, knowing that he would soon be resurrected by his Father and taken home to glory to receive his promised reward. The joy that was set before him was his homecoming. His own homecoming. You know, when former President Ford died, what was it now, a few years ago, I suppose, then, uh, of course, I'm from Grand Rapids, and Grand Rapids was President Ford's home city, and he was buried in Grand Rapids, and, well, thousands of people, my family among them, we lined the streets as, as the hearse went by, and there was a little boy next to me, and he had this great big sign over his head, Welcome home, Gerald Ford, welcome home. And people were solemn, but they were also rejoicing. There was this, this, this sense of pride in Grand Rapids that we were home to Gerald Ford's body. But imagine, welcome home, Jesus. Welcome home, Savior, Lord of glory. Welcome home, alive. Welcome home, soul and body, into the bosom of your Father, into the, well, with all the saints in your loins, the saints made perfect in Jesus, thousands upon millions. Welcome home. Oh, the joy that was set before him was magnanimous. And that joy sustained him. That joy motivated him, even under the cross, knowing he was going to bring many sons with him to glory. Shouldn't that motivate us as well? With all that we have to endure? It's nothing compared to the joy that awaits us. Nothing. The great affliction that we think we have to endure, Paul calls a light affliction compared to the exceeding weight of glory. It's wonderful, isn't it? I had a lady in my, in my church, and she, went, she was in the hospital, out of the hospital, with the pregnancy of a baby. I don't know how many times, and I can't explain it medically in terms, but just suffice it to say that she was in and out of the hospital constantly. And that nine months was such a long period of time, and there was so much pain, there was so much discomfort. Finally, the baby arrived full term. Everything was well. And I went to see her, and I shook my head as I stood beside that bed, and I said, you've really been through a lot, haven't you? What, Pastor, she said? I haven't been through anything. I've got the baby in my arms. And she said, I, I, I forgot the nine months I already. Forgot him. I said, what? She said, having this baby, I can't tell you what it means to me. If I had to do it all over again, I'd begin tomorrow. My friend, when you get to heaven one day and you're nine months, as it were, of this short life is over and your afflictions have been endured and you enter into glory 
and you are embraced in the arms of Jesus and you rejoice in Him and He and you, you think you're going to say, oh, I, I think I went through too many afflictions? Come on. Let the joy that is before you motivate you to live wholly and solely for Jesus in the here and now. One day when we meet him, we will be overwhelmed. His beauty. Have you heard that story of the young man named William, 19th century young blind man, William Montague? True story, by the way. He fell in love with a young lady who wanted to marry him despite his blindness. And a few months before the wedding, a surgeon came to William's father, who was a notable um, career officer, and said to him, Sir, I think I might be able to help your William. There's a certain surgery that's been developed. I might be able to help him. And the father talked to William. William said, I'll undergo it on one condition. Let's do it a week before the wedding. And uh, bandages had to be on for a week so that when my bride walks up the aisle, I want you, Dad, to come from the first pew and take away the bandages because the first thing I want to see is my bride. And it was a very august body of illustrious people, high-class people, aristocrats. And the wedding happened. The surgery happened. And the wedding happened. When the bride was ready to walk up the aisle, Father took away all the bandages. And it worked. And the first thing he saw was his bride coming down the aisle. And he was so astonished at her beauty that he lost control. And he just said to the whole August body, looking straight in her eyes, My dear, you are far more beautiful than I ever imagined. Isn't that what heaven will be? When we enter in and look at Jesus, we will be overwhelmed. If the bride, if the queen of Sheba said of King Solomon, the half of it was not told me when she saw his earthly glory and splendor, what will we say when we see the heavenly glory and splendor? Oh, we will say with Rutherford, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will end in glorifying him and praising him. And all the problems of this life will be nothing compared to the joy that is before me. But thirdly, we get motivated not only by what he endured and by what he rejoiced in, but about what he despised. What he despised. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame. What a shame to die on the cross. The accursed cross. What a shame to have people walk by you and wag their heads and say, what a criminal he must have been. What a shame. A shame that was more intense perhaps than his pain. But he willingly bore the shame. He didn't grumble. He didn't protest. He didn't ask for a retrial because of the punishment and the shame of the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame. You know, when you walk through this life as a Christian, you will be shamed by the world. Just like I mentioned Pilgrim's Progress. You remember what happened when, John, when Christian began to run the race? His family came out. His neighbors came out. 
And they shamed him. They said, you're going out of your mind. And what did he do? He put his fingers in his ears and he ran on and he said, life, life, eternal life. He despised the shame. Live by the fear of God, said John Knox, and you need not fear any man. Despise the shame of the world. Let the fear of God rule your life. The fear of God, which John Brown of Ramphy said, I define this way. It is to esteem the smiles and the frowns of God to be of greater weight than the smiles and the frowns of men. So let this be your motivation. Cast aside sin. Look to Jesus. Be motivated by what he endured. Be motivated by what he enjoyed. Be motivated by what he despised. And finally, be motivated by the witness of the saints. You thought I skipped the first part of verse 1, but I didn't. Look at the first part of verse 1. Wherefore seen, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us therefore lay aside every weight, etc. So what the author to the Hebrews does is he uses all of Hebrews 11 as motivating ground to say, as you run this race, my friends, you've got all the Old Testament saints in the stands around you. And they're cheering you on. Let them be a cloud that encompasses you and encourages you and motivates you to run the race. How do they encourage us? Well, for one thing, they were all faithful spiritual athletes. In the past, every one of them is a gold medal winner. And there they are in the stand saying, if we can do it in the Old Testament era, you can do it in the New. If we can do it on the other side of the promise being fulfilled, you can do it with the promises fulfilled. That's what he says. These all, verse 39 of chapter 11, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Oh, what, a, what an encouragement they are. How they cheer us on, don't they? When you read about Enoch walking with God and pleasing God, doesn't that make you want to be like Enoch? When you read about Abraham offering up Isaac, doesn't that make you want to be like Abraham? When you read about Joseph giving commandment concerning his bones, doesn't it motivate you? See, as we read the Old Testament, we're surrounded with saints who encourage us but we have something more. We've got the New Testament saints. Doesn't Paul motivate you when you read all that Paul suffered in the Corinthians for the joy of Jesus Christ, serving Jesus Christ? Doesn't he motivate you? And we've got church history. Doesn't Luther motivate you? And Calvin? And Henry Bullinger? And George Whitfield? And Spurgeon? And Lloyd-Jones? Pressing on all their life despite formidable Obstacles and opposition. And I'm surrounded with books by people that motivate me. I've got Samuel Rutherford right on my nightstand, his letters. When I get discouraged, I pick it up. Read a letter or two. He's in prison. And he's so filled with Christ. It motivates me. 
motivates me when I read Philippians, knowing that Paul wrote the epistle of joy from prison. They're all part of the cloud of witnesses. So we got a very full stance. Even Western Michigan University can't hold them, you see. We've got Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, church history people, people in our own church, living people. Fill the stands. Clouds of witnesses. I believe in the communion of saints. Teammates who've reached their goal. Teammates who are in the process of reaching their goal. We're surrounded. Well, you, you 100 people. How would you feel if you're the only one in this building this afternoon? You're the only one. You'd feel very different, wouldn't you, about the soul conference? But the very fact that there's 99 others, and you're sitting around, and together you're learning the same things. Together we're talking. Together we're encouraging each other by our very presence to run the race. Oh, you've all had people like that in your life. Some encourage you more than others. You've heard me mention my father several times. My father is a very important part of my life. He's dead. He's been dead for 15 years, but he still speaks. He being dead yet speaketh, like Abel, to me. Just before he died, I can remember him saying to me, sometimes it's like he's still sitting on my shoulder, whispering to my ears as I'm preaching, preach Christ, Joel. You can never preach enough of Christ. Preach him. Let him be the beginning, the end, the middle of your sermon. He encourages me. I used to preach in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where he was an elder. And he'd sit right there in the front pew. And when I'd start preaching about Christ, I'd see the tears streaming down his face many a time. Ah, he's in the stand still. He's saying, keep running. Don't give up. And sometimes I'm tempted to give up. I get discouraged too. Ministers get very discouraged. I get harassed by Satan. That's why I wrote a book on it. Try to encourage myself. Sometimes I'm on the way to church and I get very quiet. I'm driving along. My wife knows. She knows what's going on. She becomes part of the cloud of witnesses. She leans over. She whispers in my ear, have you got it again? I know what she means by have you got it again. Yes, I say, I've got it again. And what have I got? I've got this overwhelming fear. I can't preach. I've got this overwhelming fear. I don't know anything. i got this overwhelming fear. Who am I to ascend the pulpit in the name of God? God, help me. I can't do it. I'd rather, I'd rather you give me $10,000 if I could run away from that pulpit that particular morning. I seem to get this a couple times a year. I just get overwhelmed. And she leans over and she says to me, God will help you one more time. I told you I had a good wife. God will help you one more time. <sighs> yes, one more time, Lord. Give me power one more time. Help me through one more message. She's part of the cloud of witnesses. She motivates me. You've got your own motivators. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's an elder. Maybe it's your pastor. Let the cloud of witnesses help you run. Be motivated to run the race that is set before you. Endure. That's how you grow. By the grace of God, you endure to the end.
Let me close this series of messages by telling you that it's possible that sitting here this afternoon, some of you have never begun to run the race. May I ask you in love, are you a runner? Are you at the racetrack now? Are you a marathon runner? Are you thinking about quitting? In 19th century northern Scotland, there was a major train line that crossed the Great Ravine. And the viaduct that bridged it was one of the great wonders of the north. One night there was a terrible, terrible storm. The stream under the viaduct turned into a raging torrent. And the young highland shepherd boy sheltered his sheep as best he could for the night. Early in the morning he woke up. He went to see how his sheep fared. And as he made his way up the hillside, he noticed to his horror that the central column of the viaduct had disappeared. The bridge was broken. And so the boy scampered up the embankment, going through thorn bushes and, and, and thistles and ran to the track. He knew the train was coming. And sure enough, the train was coming. And he waved the train to stop. And the conductor just waved him away. Just waved him away. And the boy didn't know what to do. There was only one thing left to do. He fell on the, he fell on the track in front of the train. And the conductor slammed on the brakes and ran over the boy. And stopped. Just before the edge. And everybody woke up in the train. And they got out. They ran to the front of the train. What happened? They looked at the conductor. They looked at the track. They looked at the ravine. They looked at the broken track. And they looked at the mangled remains of the boy. And no one said a word for several minutes. Till finally, a man said, That boy saved our lives. My friend, the Lord Jesus Christ flings himself across the tracks of our lives. Will you stop? Will you repent? Will you believe? Will you get on the racetrack? Will you run the race? Or will you, rod, will you ride roughshod over a cross-bearing Savior into the abyss of hell, rejecting him, and going your own way and spurning his invitations? Will you reject the infinite shepherd love of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will you run the race that is set before you? There's only two choices. If God be God, follow him. If Baal be God, 
follow him. But know that it will lead you into the deep ravine of eternal anathema and eternal dereliction forever. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we thank thee so much for the gospel. We thank thee for Jesus Christ and the wonderful cross and all that he has endured. We thank thee for how thou dost mature thy people, bringing them out into the racetrack, regenerating them, and then giving them legs to run and hands to fight and fingers to war and to run the race set before them. We pray that we may do so, that we may be good soldiers in the army of King Jesus, good runners for the high prize of the calling of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please, Lord, help us to run the race. Help us to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to manifest thy glory in this needy world. And do bless each friend gathered here this afternoon. Lord, help us to meditate on what we've heard. Let it be useful and fruitful. And I do pray, Lord, that everyone here may have grown a little bit this afternoon in the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.